So we're in the middle of our exploration of Jewish teachings on how to treat the stranger and the other. The Hebrew word is ger. And the first two classes, we looked at all the biblical references to how to treat the stranger. And uh, uh, as I, we were talking uh, last class, and I'll explain because some of you weren't here. Because <coughs> today I want to look at some of the rabbinic teachings about how to treat the, treat the ger. The Hebrew word is ger. And as we explained, as Judaism became in the Roman era, more of a, uh, as, it's, as the nature of what it meant to be Jewish changed from being a member of the people who, the Judeans, who, to being a Jew. Hi, Steve. Hi. To being a Jew, the question of who is the ger, the stranger in your community, changed from being a, someone who's not part of your national tribal group to someone who's not part of your religious group. Make sense? Right? And so ger took on a completely new meaning in um, a rabbinic thought. No longer the uh, resident alien who lives in your community. Now it's the convert, the person who wants to become Jewish, and it even becomes a verb in Hebrew. Lehit gayer means to convert to Judaism. So once again, lesson number one, Judaism is an evolving civilization. What was true in biblical times can take on dramatically new meaning, the same word in a later era. And just remember that, it, there's nothing static about Judaism. Uh, so, the question did remain, though, how do you treat the stranger, the other, who wants to join your community? But now it's cast in religious terms, right? And uh, again, we're not talking about the stranger who's on the other side of the world, who you never meet. We're in, in general, these teachings are about the stranger who wants to become part of your community, right? And that's even a little different than, uh, and not, I'm not invalidating one idea over the other. I'm just uh, saying what these texts are talking about because there are also the strangers in, uh, we can, we're gonna look at teachings from the rabbinic era. In the modern era, uh, we have to loosen those ideas again because our community is no longer self-contained, right? We are, we are just completely intertwined with other communities around us as part of a lot the larger national, uh, a national entity that we're part of Americans. So, you know, I was actually reading um, some interesting articles about all this, where one of the I think I was saying this in the first class. <clears throat> excuse me, several weeks ago, that Jewish law not only asks the question of how you treat the stranger, that is, the person who wants to become part of your community, but also asks the question how you treat all the other people that happen to be in the same neck of the woods as you. And there's a category developed in rabbinic thought called mipnei darkei shalom, which I mentioned many weeks ago, which means 
for the paths of peace, for the sake of peace, uh, you're, you're supposed to treat everybody well, right? Obviously. Uh, and in the Middle Ages, the question will arise, if you're asked to, if, if a doctor is asked to uh, 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 heal a Jewish person on the Sabbath, can they break the Sabbath in order to do that healing act? And we know the answer is yes. But the, the rabbis ask, but what about a non-Jew? Should you break the Sabbath in order to serve a non-Jew? Because you're a physician and they need your, your emergency attention. And there's a debate, right? Because in the Middle Ages, communities weren't all intertwined the way ours are today. There was no democracy. You were in your place, you closed the gates at night, you know what I mean? So you have to understand the time and place, of course. And the general conclusion is mipnei darkei shalom, for the sake of, the, of keep, keeping peaceful relationships, you should. But it's interesting nuance because it's not because they're a human being just like you, right? That's a different set of reasoning. It's not that they're not a human being. It's just a different time and place. But then in reading this fascinating article, um, Moshe Feinstein, who, um, was, who died a few years ago, very old, who was the leading um, orthodox, Gadol, meaning the, the great one of his generation who's, who, through merit, really, rose to the top of the pile and became the one everyone in the, most everyone in the Orthodox world turned to uh, um, for halachic rulings, for rulings of Jewish law. I've got to find this. Hold on a minute. I thought this was really cool. Uh... All right, I have a second, second source. Forget Moshe Feinstein for a minute. Um, and, and Rabbi Joseph, Joseph Soloveitchik, who was his peer who died long ago, said, the modern Jew, a very orthodox, right, we're talking, the modern Jew is entangled in the activities of the Gentile society in numerous ways economically, politically, culturally, and on some level, socially. We share in the universal experience the problems of humanity, war and peace, political stability or anarchy, morality or permissiveness. Famine, epidemics, and pollution transcend the boundaries of ethnic groups. Okay, so that was Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik, a man of faith in the modern world, uh, this was written in the late 20th century. So you can see that even in the many parts of the Orthodox world, uh, under, there was a, there's a clear understanding that we live in different times. Hi. That we live in different times and that what was considered a judgment call in the past, in the Middle Ages, doesn't, doesn't pertain. Um, and, it's and it's simply because it... Ref Again, Judaism is an evolving tradition. Its mores and its reflect the realities that we live in at any given time. I thought that was quite interesting. Uh, so meanwhile, let's go back 
to the rabbinic period, to some very famous stories about Hillel and Shammai that some of us might remember and are worth reading again about how to treat this, the ger. I was saying before, ger in the Torah means the resident alien, the, the foreigner who lives with you, but in rabbinic times it means the person who's interested in becoming a Jew but is not born Jewish. So, let's start with these. So, who were Hillel and Shammai? Um, they were, anybody want to share? That's right, they were, they were the, lead, the, the leaders of the rabbinic community. They each had an academy, meaning a, a lineage, people who studied under them. This is in the early, this is actually a long time ago. <laughs> this is in like the first century BC. They, Hillel and Shammai are the, you could call them among the founding fathers of the rabbinic tradition. From Hillel stems a dynasty, actually, of rabbis that, we, that tracks for several centuries until the fourth century. The descendants of Hillel are held in high esteem. Um, it's not that Shammai isn't held in esteem, but it was Hillel's line that became the predominant teacher line and legal line in Judaism. And we don't know very much about Hillel and Shammai as individuals. Um, we just, this was BC? Uh, Hillel died probably around 10 BC, which is fascinating when you study... Uh, hey, Jerry. Taking care. Thank you which is fascinating when you study the teachings of Jesus. Uh, because you realize that Hillel, who was the leading light of rabbinic Pharisaic Judaism, says most of the things that Jesus says, but happened to say them a few decades earlier. Uh, and that's a, They were not contemporaries. They actually, one preceded the other. Um, and uh, became, Hillel be, rapidly became the voice of rabbinic Judaism. Um, everything, he's really thinks, everything flows from Hillel's teachings. And Shammai's Shammai is, it's a fascinating thing. We don't know much about Shammai, except that because the rabbinic tradition is a tradition of debate and dialogue, right? It's not a tradition of decrees. It's a tradition of discussion and then decisions, legal decisions based on the discussion. Hillel and Shammai become, I would say, archetypes of the rabbinic method because you hear about hundreds of their disputes over the correct way 
to fulfill Jewish law in the Torah. And there are other pairs after Hillel and Shammai who also fulfill that role, but they are the, they're the, the, the paradigm setters of this. So these are, these are stylized, right? These are not history. These are um, lessons. These are, you know, these are stories with a message. And so Shammai's character is almost always clear, and Hillel's character, as you'll see, is almost always clear, and things always go Hillel's way. <laughs> because of Hillel's character. Because of the kind of approach he has to human beings. And again, do we know about this historically? Not necessarily. So maybe Hillel invented Shammai. We, kn- we don't know. I bet there was a Shammai. Um, uh, because we know that there, there were pairs in ancient, on the ancient Sanhedrin who, who were in charge of the court. There was someone called the Av Beitin, chief judge, I don't know. I don't know how you translate it. And what was the other one called? Anybody remember? Um, anyway, there were two positions, and they held these positions, as did others. Um, so I bet there was a Shammai. Well, my point is, is that whatever their actual discourse was, it's become it becomes archetypal description of how you debate. And there are stories about them, too. And these are the famous stories about people who wanted to become gerim, who wanted to convert to Judaism, who approached them. So I'll start. It's number 15. Our masters taught a certain heathen, heathen is nochri, Gentile is how it might get... uh, called, once came before Shammai and asked him, how many Torahs have you? Two, he replied, Shammai replied, the written Torah and the oral Torah. I will believe you about the written Torah, but not about the oral Torah. Take me as a proselyte. Proselyte is a fancy word for someone who wants to become a Jew, a convert, on condition that you teach me only the written Torah. In response, Shammai scolded him and angrily ordered him to get out. (laughs) Okay, that's Shammai. Yeah, that's his personality all the time. Um, Not all the time, there are exceptions. Uh, So, again, for people who don't know this stuff, the written Torah in the Jewish tradition is the written Torah on the scroll. The oral Torah is all all of our tradition's interpretations of the Torah. The rabbis are in charge of the oral Torah. So if you want to learn the rabbinic method, you have to learn both the written Torah and all of its interpretations. One of the big issues in Judaism in the first and second and third centuries and before, around in that whole period of centuries before and after the, the beginning of the Common Era, <coughs> is that there were Jewish, Jewish groups who did not accept the rabbi's interpretation, that is, the rabbi's oral Torah. And so the rabbis, who are also known as the Pharisees, who get a dirty name in the New Testament, um, were only one group vying for authoritative um, uh, position. position of what the Torah says and means. 
We know about the other groups. We read about them. Uh, so that's the oral and written Torah. Could you say where this is from? Oh, yeah. This comes from um, uh, the Talmud. Uh, let's see. I don't have the exact citation here. It's on the bottom. It's the very bottom. The lower, the lower right bottom. Oh, okay. That's a tractate of the Talmud called Avodah Zarah, which is the whole tractate on the Talmud dealing with um, idol, idol, idolaters and idol worship. So, I'll continue. So, ironically, this is oral Torah. Yeah. Right. right. There's so much irony for me in the rabbinic method because they're talking about themselves. Right. They've created this tradition and they've created a tradition of debate. Of debate. Right, which is one of the greatest legacies, one of the most beautiful things about Judaism is that it's a, it enshrines this kind of dialogue. I saw another hand, yeah. So those groups would be what we today would call fundamentalists? No, oh. The ones who mm, well, we could also, accept the written? No, I, think that's, I don't think the category, um, it's not that they it would only accept the written word, it's that they didn't accept the rabbi's authority to interpret. They had their own interpretation. Oh. Um, and they were known as the Sadducees. There's another group called the Essenes. Uh, and they each had their own take. I think that would be a fairer way to say it. They were each trying to get their interpretation um, to be dom- predominant. Um, and, you know, in modern lingo, that's true of fundamentalists as well. But they hide behind, just like originalists of the Constitution, they hide behind this absurd claim that they're only saying what the text really means. And here's what it really means. And it, you know, it, it's really, uh, uh, it's intellectually bogus, right? Um, but makes you feel good. Okay, so there, Shammai chases him away. When he went for Hillel, the latter accepted him as a proselyte. And the Hebrew word is ger. And on the first day, Hillel taught him the letters of the alphabet in order. Aleph, Bet, Gimel, Dalet, and so on to Tav. The following day, he reversed the order of the letters. But yesterday, you did not teach them to me in this order, the heathen protested. Is it not upon me, Hillel asked, that you have to rely to know the correct order of the letters of the alphabet? Then you must also rely upon me for the validity of the oral Torah. Okay, so Hillel and Shammai both, agree, both are uh, uh, claim the same, they're, all, they're both playing in the same sandbox. It's the oral Torah. So it's really about how Shammai treats a newcomer versus how Hillel treats the, the stranger. That's what these teachings are about. And now we'll have two more examples. And interrupt me anytime. On another occasion, it happened that a certain heathen came before Shammai and said to him, Take me as a ger, but on condition that you teach me the entire Torah, all of it, while I stand on one foot. Remember this one? This is famous. In fact, this website that I really like is called On One Foot. <laughs> Jewish text for social justice. I really like that. Uh, oh, I stand on one foot. 
Shammai instantly drove him away with a builder's measuring rod he happened to have in his hand. So he had one of these, like, giant sticks, you know, because uh, he was a builder. Shammai was a prosperous builder. And that's another part of the paradigm that they set up. Hillel was an impoverished uh, Babylonian who came all the way to Israel on foot because he just wanted to learn Torah. So again, you see where the values of the rabbis lie in the sort of this passionate embrace without... Yeah. Do you want to say anything? Okay. But it's nice to have, a, when, you have when you're when you hiring a builder to have somebody exacting. That's right. So Shammai's not a bad guy. But you, but the, but still, Hillel is is, is uh, preferred. More flexible. I just, I just, I heard it as Jesus imitate in that imitation. Oh, Jesus, Hillel. I think Jesus is a descendant of Hillel. That's what I, I really that. do. I really do. Um, mm-hmm. And so, Shammai instantly drove him away with a builder's measuring rod he happened to have in his hand. When the heathen came before Hillel, Hillel said to him, What is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow man. This is the entire Torah, all of it. The rest is commentary. Go and study. So that's the Torah on one foot, and that becomes one of the centerpieces of Jewish uh, um, <clears throat> sayings. What's the Torah on one foot? Teach it on one foot. Love your neighbor as yourself. The rest is commentary. Go and study. So again, when Jesus says, uh, love your neighbor as yourself and love God with all your heart and soul and might, that is the entire Torah. I'm quoting from the New Testament. Um, this, is its, this is where it's coming from. Um, it's not, he's not contradicting the rabbis. He's simply a Pharisaic Jew. It's fascinating stuff. Um, Okay, so people ask, why does Hillel put it in the negative? What is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow, your, your neighbor, instead of love your neighbor as yourself? I have a feeling it's in the context of this story. He knows this guy is trying to bust his chops. Right, teach me the Torah, staying on foot. The, these guys, these, in these setup stories, the potential convert is coming in trying to get a rise out of the teacher, the potential teacher. And, and Hillel sort of says, hey, you know, what's hateful to you, do to somebody else. That's the Torah, kiddo. You can go, stu- go study and then come back when you're ready. Do you know what I mean? But he doesn't do it by shooing him away with a, 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 a rod or a hammer. On another occasion, it happened that a certain heathen passing behind a synagogue And I think this is supposed to be funny, everybody. I think these are all supposed to be humorous in a way. Um, Heard the voice of a teacher reciting, quoting the Torah. And these are the garments which they shall make for the the breast piece. Beautiful breast piece, an aphod, a beautiful girdle. Um, And he asked, for whom are these intended? And he was told, for the high priest. The heathen said to himself, I'll go and become a ger, so I may be appointed high priest and get to wear these clothes. Shammai promptly, oh, he went before Shammai and said to him, take me as a proselyte on condition that you appoint me high priest. That's a funny story. That's ridiculous. <laughs> Shammai promptly drove him away with a builder's measuring rod he happened to have in his hand. 
But when the ger went before Hillel, Hillel made him a proselyte, made him a ger. When the nochri, nochri means the heathen, he made him a ger. And asked, but then he asked, Hillel asks him, is a king appointed unless he knows the details of governance? <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, it happens sometimes, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> Go now and study details of the temple's governance. So the new proselyte went and read the Torah. And when he came to the verse that said, and the layman that cometh nigh unto the, unto the temple shall be put to death into the Holy of Holies, he asked Hillel, to whom does this verse apply? Even to David, king of Israel, because David was not a priest. At that, the proselyte applied to himself an argument a fortiori. If Israel are called sons of him who is everywhere indeed, he speaks to them as Israel, my firstborn son, out of the love he has for them. Yet of them it is written, the layman that cometh nigh shall be put to death. Surely how much more and more do these words apply to a lowly proselyte who comes with his staff in his shoulder bag. So he figures out that he can't be a high priest. Um, and uh, so then he went before Shammai and said to them, him, could I have ever been eligible to become high priest? It is, not, is it not written in the Torah, the layman that cometh nigh shall be put to death? Now he goes and reprimands Shammai. He says, you know, why don't you just tell me? Next he went before Hillel and said to him, O gentle Hillel, may blessings rest on your head for bringing me under the wings of the divine presence. So this is also about pedagogy. Right? This is really, these are, the stories that I've picked for the, this class and probably the next one are really dense and are about all, they're, they're, they're almost mythic in, you know, they're not, so let's, let's really just sort of keep reflecting on them. And here's the punchline. Sometime later, when the three aforementioned proselytes happened to meet in one place, they said, Shammai's severity nearly drove us from the world, but Hillel's gentleness brought us under the wings of the present. Hence, to say the sages, a man should always be as flexible as Hillel, not as inflexible as Shammai. And that's, that's the moral of the story. Hillel didn't. Ha Hillel was a. Hillel didn't have a trade. Hillel was a. I don't think it ever talks about Hillel's trade. Oh yeah, yeah. He. he I think he was like a wood, like a, you know, a wood chopper or something. Some very. Some basic, trade. Ultimately, he becomes the head of the, uh, a cat of the Sanhedrin, and I don't think he works at anything else after that. I'm not sure. I think he's a wood collector. A wood chopper, like uh, Baal Shem Tov also, those stories about the poor wood chopper. Again, this is, this is all becomes legend, the language of legend. So the moral is when, you have, when you're busy earning a living, you don't have time for fools. <laughs> but if you want to be a... Um, but the rabbis are saying if you want to be a, a good Jew... You have to figure out how to welcome people in under the divine presence. So, uh, and so there are many sayings in the Torah, in, in the rabbinic uh, teachings about uh, that if you don't make time for Torah and only have time for business, you're, 
you're in trouble. Um, but if you only have time for Torah and don't, is that what you said? If you only have time for Torah and don't make time for No, if you only have time for business and don't make time for Torah, meaning for spiritual yeah. practice. What about the other way around? The other way around? Uh, it, it says anyone who may, now this is a whole other story, okay? Talk about changing over eras. The, the Mishnah is very clear that you should not use the Torah in order to make a living. That every teacher of Torah should have a trade. And that is true of the rabbis in the Talmud. They all have professions. That's why I say Hillel also had a profession, had a trade. I don't remember what it is. That changes. that changes over time as the rabbi becomes more and more professionalized. The, the position of rabbi becomes more professionalized. And so even though the mission is crystal clear that you shouldn't use the Torah for making a living, um, doesn't hold up in modern era as the rabbinate becomes professionalized. And so, I mean, I'm thinking of even the, the people who just study all the time and their wives. Oh, that's a whole other thing. Judaism changes over the centuries. And as Torah study gets elevated to what, you, what a man should be doing all the time in some Jewish circles, uh, it, yes, they, the wives subsidize them, the government subsidizes them, they're on the dole all the time, so they can just keep, essentially, in their worldview, keep the foundation of the universe intact by continuing to do this. And, uh, you know, many will say that's a perversion mm-hmm. of uh, the intention. Um, what's happening in Israel right now is many of these folks are entering the workforce because they're too poor. They, they, they need to make a living. So things in that regard are changing too. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Some kind of political um, decision recently about the Haredi in the armed forces? Yes, they're also having units in the army for the ultra-Orthodox. Yeah. And, but it's, uh, it's optional, but a certain, sub, certain number of them are enlisting. Um, yeah, everything's always changing. Um, so we look for the principle behind it. Um, okay, so always be as flexible as Hillel, not as inflexible as Shammai. Think about his pedagogy and how he welcomes the stranger. Um, he never reprimands them to their face. He always makes a gentle suggestion. He's, um, it's fascinating when you think about it, how, how skillful and thoughtful he is in uh, how he responds. I mean, when he tells the guy, what is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow man, there's a bit of an edge in that, but uh, the but guy gets it. He's not... It's upended with the next line, which is almost, uh, almost comical. The rest is commentary, yeah. go and study it, huh? Yeah, it's almost sort of like, it's, it's harsh, and then it's sort of, it's a relief, it's, uh, and it's a little bit humorous, I think. It feels like Hillel goes to great lengths not to shame the person for not knowing. And this would be, you know, in the context of rabbinic study, the way that you would want to treat even the person who knows nothing. So, Ruth? So, I don't want to take... I'm wondering if we can address the question, what's kind of clarifying in my mind, the question is clarifying, of our beings, kind of strangers in a strange land, right? Specifically here, but everywhere. Right. How do we behave as 
outsiders or guests here, right? As not exactly gear, but in a way, right? That how do we be gracious when we're, what percentage of the population locally and nationally, one, two, three percent? And, you know, how do we get to say, um, the school should be closed for our holidays when we're 3% or 2% or 1%. You know, it's confusing. You know, where do we take a stance? What are reasonable oh, expectations? That is such a moving target. What a difficult question. It is, and mm -hmm. it never seems to get a conversation. I've never been in a real conversation outside of, and then they're open on the second day of Rosh Hashanah, you know, except for people not liking what happens. You grew up in, say, in New York and New Jersey. In Jersey, so you were used to it, yeah. I was used to schools being closed. Right, yeah. well, you know. It was a given. In New York and New Jersey, 90% of the public school teachers were Jewish. 40% of the students were Jewish at one point when we were kids, 30, 40%. And so, yeah. But that was then and there. Yeah, now it's different. Now it's different. And so what's our, you know, what's fair or real or how do we look at that? Gosh, that seems like a political question to me, Ruth, more than a... Yeah, it's not where I would usually go. But it comes up a lot around Pesach. Um, and we don't have to go there, but okay. it does come... We had a little conversation yeah. about this last year. Yeah, I don't know how that pertains to the topic at hand exactly. Well, us as kind of being... Well, being are we the strangers? Mm -hmm. um, I finally made the connection that that's where yeah, we're, we're, not the, we're not the mainstream. We're not the mainstream... Yeah. Should but like again, we have, to, we have to contextualize it. The American democratic system, for as long as it lasts, and let's hope it does. Or has lasted. Well, I'm not, you know, yeah. let's hope it does. Yeah. Um, is founded on the principle that anyone can become an American citizen. Anyone. Right? And yes, when you study the history, there are periods of protectionism and more openness. It all depends on economics and social trends and all that sort of thing. But that's the fundamental principle. And the Jews have been able to integrate, integrate as American citizens. So um, it's a very different paradigm um, and a blessed one. But to call ourselves strangers is a mistake in the American system. It's a mistake. Or a guest. I live here. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. According to the principles of American, the, of, of the United States sort of system, we're citizens, we're here, this is our country. And yes, there are other competing trends that, have, that rear their heads constantly of, of, um, of uh, uh, no, we're a white Christian nation, right? But that's not, the, that's not the predominant uh, those are competing narratives. And I think it's a mistake for Jews to say, uh, to, to constantly, the refrain, it could happen here, da-da-da. It's like, yes, it could happen here. Yes, yes, yes. But to define ourselves as outside in a system that has integrated us because of the value system is a mistake. I think it's the wrong thing to do. And then it just becomes a civic and political question. How much clout do we have? How many allies do we have? How do we get our agenda on the table? And you work at it. Um, and you get what you can get, and you, you, you don't fight the windmills that you know you're never going to have anymore. And you, but 
that's that's how it's set up. Do you follow what I'm saying? Yeah, so I see it as quite different than the topic we're saying. What did you want to no, say? Just as a retired uh, high school teacher and counselor in New York, um, in the other holidays, um, Sukkot, the holidays where the very the Orthodox people they have they have to, they take personal days. They're not the schools aren't closed, and the kids also are excused as the absence, but they still. I mean, so there's. I mean, that's the difference with that, too. Right. And my parents sent me to Jewish day schools so that I would have Jewish holidays off, because that was a decision they made. Uh, you know, and uh, that uh, other parents I know uh, chose specifically public school for their kids so that they would be Americans. You know, it's like, it's so complicated. Uh, and, and yes, we are immigrants, and yes, there's anti-Semitism, but I, I, I don't think we should think of ourselves as strangers here in America. But that may not have been good language. It's just what we're at right now. I understand, but uh, I understand. Yeah. I understand. Uh, let's see, I saw another. Yes. I know what it is to be in the majority. I went to Miami Beach High School and schools in Miami, in Miami Beach. Nine, over 95% of the kids were Jewish. And the teachers. And they closed, you know, they were closed for Yom Kippur. They were closed for the two days of Rosh Hashanah. Every minor holiday, if you got a note that you went to the synagogue, you were excused for that. So you go into the synagogue, and they'd have stacks of, uh, stacks of notes there that you could bring back to your school. And you felt like you're, you didn't feel like an outsider. You felt like you were like, like everybody was the same as you. Mm-hmm. Like when I used to date, my parents never asked me, is the guy Jewish? Because everybody was Jewish. You know? <laughs> so it's like a different feeling because you right. feel like you're just included with all your friends. And that moment, that's a moment in time that's, right. that's less and less true, right. except for the Jewish communities that self-segregate yeah. now. And it's a very different time. But included in this very different time since 1948, there's a Jewish nation, Israel. And anybody who doesn't want to be in the minority, any Jew, can move there. And there, the experience is very different. And the experience of how you treat the stranger in Israel is a live question, because you are in a Jewish society. And one of the reasons people move to Israel, one of the reasons why I'd still like to move to Israel before I die, is so that I can play on that territory, which is an opportunity to apply some incredible teachings. Uh, So I mentioned to you last class, the current hot issue in certain part of Israeli society is that the government wants to deport or jail all of the asylum seekers and, and refugees who walked across the Sudan and Egypt to get safe haven in Israel. Okay, so Again, I'm going to repeat. They walked to Israel because they knew they wouldn't be killed there. Israel's not comparable to Sudan or Egypt. Israel's a nation of laws, however poor, well or poorly they implement them. So it's not like, oh, Israel. You know, it's, a, it's like every country around them wouldn't even let these people in. Right? So you got to get that straight. But the government right now is a very reactionary, protectionist, ultra-nationalist government. And under cover of Trump, because the leader of the free world sets the tone, many, many other nations are misbehaving, as you know, 
and many, many react, you know, reactionary regimes are coming strong, on strong. Under that cover, this reactionary government in Israel is trying to deport them. There is a large amount of civil resistance in Israel against this. But when you see their signs, they say, do not mistreat the stranger, exodus. In other words, the cultural reference point is Jewish tradition. It's not democracy, even though that's important too. But so one of the reasons I love being in Israel is that this tradition that I cherish, I can take to the streets, if you follow what I'm saying. So I think part of talking about this moment in time, yes, we're 2% of the American population. Uh, in Israel, we're 80% we're of the population. And it's a state that's founded on you know, Jewish time, Jewish principles, Jewish language, Jewish homeland, Jewish history. Uh, that it, it's a very real question there of how we are going to treat the resident alien, the undocumented immigrant. The, you know, it's a Jewish question there much more than it is here. I want to keep the Jewish teachings to the fore here in our community to inspire us to keep supporting our neighbor, the stranger, here in the States. But I know our influence is small, and so I want each of us to be influenced by Judaism's teachings and how we engage in the civil sphere here. In Israel, it's, this, you, the signs are in the restaurant windows. We support African asylum seekers because it says in the Torah, da da da. It's really interesting and beautiful. Yes. So, is there something in the New Testament that parallels this that the Christian, quote, right here could quote and address that would be similar? So, that to what the Orthodox Jews are now quoting that, you know. They're not Orthodox Jews. Oh, oh no, 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 oh. no. These are secular Israeli Jews. Oh, right. That's, That's my right point. Now. That's my point. Right. They are not doing this in synagogue, right. and they right. don't like going to synagogue, but they still have embraced right. the values of Judaism right. in the governance of their society. Right. So I'm just asking, if, is there a Christian parallel to this? Well, and the Christians can be, quote the Old Testament. They can, but they don't. They do when it serves them. Everybody, everybody quotes what serves them. And there are all kinds of quotes from the Torah that I don't use because it don't serve me. Right. You know, yeah. Going back to Pharaoh, when we were the strangers. Yes. Just being a little devil's advocate here. It's very different to welcome one person who comes and says with a chip on his shoulder, I want to study with you. And Hillel, you know, gently removes the chip and welcomes him in. It's a whole different thing when you have a whole tribe that is increasing and threatening your very way of life. Were they? Well, maybe they were. I mean... Uh what evidence do we... That, well, that's what Pharaoh says. Pharaoh says they're a fifth column, they're going to join with our enemies and right. try to overthrow us. Right. So, I mean, that's, it's just very different. Uh, politically, it's different. Again, the American experiment is unique, I think, thus far in human history, which is that, give me your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. I lift my lamp beside the golden door, you know, and... So millions of uh, Irish and Germans in the mid-19th century, and then 
uh, uh, the Italians and the Jews and the Poles and the Slovaks and the, you know, in the, from 1880 to 1930 to 23, uh, transformed this country. I mean, there's no question about it. It's fascinating. American, and then of course there are all the African Americans who came in chains, who create the kind of like darkness of American history that's still as real as any of these positive elements are. I guess um, what I'm asking is that the, the teachings, well, forgive my ignorance, but the teachings are about welcoming the stranger. Are there ones that address that if the strangers come in accords and? Ah, ah, those would be considered enemies. They're not looking to become part of your polity. They're looking to overtake it. Right? Well, not at all. And that is... Maybe they're just using... Maybe they're just looking for... Safe haven. Safe haven. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good question. It sounds like a good debate on immigration, doesn't it? Right, but... No, this doesn't come up in the Torah. Um, or the Talmud. Or, or the Talmud, because it was a different... It, it, I guess because of context. It doesn't come up. Um, enemies in the Torah want to conquer you. Strangers are those who come into your midst who want to live with you. And they are not part of a conquering army. They want or, to become part of, of your tribe. Of your entity, right. And they don't want right. to say, we want to live with you, but we reject your beliefs and customs. Exactly. Right. Well, uh, well, in the Torah, if they reject your beliefs and customs, they are not considered a gear. Right. They don't get that consideration. Right. So, yes, it's, it's, for a, it's, it's, it's how, a, how a, 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 a society integrates the stranger into their midst is this discussion of the stranger. The others are among the laws of war, which are a whole other category in Jewish thought. Um, no, I think there's a middle ground of people who say, we, we're, we don't want to accept your customs. We're going to abide by your, you know, your civil laws. Yeah, but they didn't have civil laws back then. I know, then. I know. That's what we get because we live in this time period. During uh, that so, okay, so we can all, Diane, I think we can only talk about this in the contemporary context. And we have a problem. We have groups of Americans who only want to accept part of the social contract here and don't want to accept it all. And those are primarily fundamentalists, fundamentalist Jews, fundamentalist Christians, um, and of course there's, there's fundamentalist Islam um, who are that we, I know personally about how the fundamentalist Jews, the ultra-Orthodox, game the system and play it to their advantage with no actual interest in the well-being of other citizens. Right? I know about them because they're my people. Mm-hmm. Um, I know about how the Christians do it because they have, they have significant numbers and they too um, feel they serve a higher authority and we don't know too much about Muslims in this country yet because they're a pretty young immigrant community and haven't, haven't asserted themselves in that way in this country. But we certainly know about fundamentalist Islam and about Islamic terrorists, right? So I'm not negating that at all. Mm-hmm. I just don't know as much about it. Um, and that is a giant challenge to liberal democracy. 
along with a bunch of other things that are going on right now. Um, so Canada deals with it somewhat differently than the United States does. Canada has all of these sort of semi-autonomous subgroups uh, that make up, you know, like school systems. Like there's a Jewish school system in Canada that gets funded. And there's a Christian school, and there's a French speaking, and an English school, and then so they call themselves a mosaic more than a melting pot. Yeah, right? I just found out if you want to become a, a Canadian citizen, it's harder to do it. In, in, if you want to become a citizen and you're in Quebec, it's different rules than if you're in one of the other provinces. Yes, and they're managing to hold it together there. Why? I'm sure it's a whole bunch of reasons, including lots of space and resources still that allow them to not get too uptight about it. Uh, do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, one of the reasons the United States succeeded is that there was always another frontier to conquer. And again, I'm, I'm fully aware of who got conquered and all that, but in terms of, uh, there was room. There were jobs. There was, you know, so it's really dicey. Yeah. It's really dicey. I hope I'm speaking to what you're talking about. Uh, I don't know if there's a Jewish teaching about it, because I think these are our, this, what would be the Jewish response to this moment in, in the world history? When do, you, when do you close in Israel? When do you, this is a live question. When do you close the doors? How do you retain a Jewish majority when it's the only Jewish country in the world? But how do you also fulfill the teachings of both Jewish tradition and modern humanism? in how you treat the other people who are not part of your group. These are incredibly live, important questions right now. Gail? Yes, so, so my question is, when you're talking about, I'm not talking now about being inundated, or even necessarily in Israel, but I as a Jew, if I'm talking about someone, it seems to me most, peop most people we're talking about, a lot of them, are people who are willing and ready to, to be part of the, the civil, the laws of the land, mm -hmm. but in terms of being part of my religious tribal community, which is what Ger, you're saying, really refers to in Torah. No. Ger refers to religious identity in rabbinic literature. So, well, in Torah, it refers to becoming part of the tribe. That's what I was trying to explain. But, but what I'm stuck on is somebody comes and says, I'm Hindu, okay? And I'm not giving up being Hindu, and I'm retaining that affiliation, okay? What is my Jewish response to that? Either Torah or rabbinic. What am I supposed, how do I use Jewish teaching for that? I'm not talking about being threatened, I'm not talking about being inundated, but someone who's saying, I'm part, you know, following the, the rules, the basis of American system, any of us can become a citizen, and then we're American and we're equal. Under, my, in my the law, under the law. teaching as a Jew, I'm not sure that it extends to the person who says, I want to remain. I'm using Hindu because none of us are feeling threatened at the moment by Hindu. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, you know. No, I mean, it's, I'm saying I, understand. I, I want to yeah. eliminate that as part of the issue. But I'm, I'm really, the more I've been listening, and, and <clears throat> part of this is, I'm, I'm, I have the same question you do, but it's a more general question. Really, where is the religious? I'm, I'm confused. Okay, this is interesting. Yeah. Uh, let me try to reframe this again. Uh, as I, I called, I called this class, uh, you know, um, the other in Jewish uh, uh, literature. 
in Jewish sacred texts and literature. And so I looked at the other, the ger, the stranger, in the Torah, and that's what we looked at the first two classes, and then I wanted to take it, how did they treat the other in rabbinic literature? And I tried to explain at the beginning of the class that this was in a dramatically different uh, um, social and political context. The Jews were no longer sovereign. They were scattered all over. In, they had redefined themselves as a re- national-slash-religious group who, uh, throughout the Roman realm and beyond into Babylonia. And so the Gare became the one, the Gare, the stranger who, uh, the best translation again I can have is resident alien, who lives among you and is not you, uh, which meant a re- someone in Judea pr- before that, but now meant someone who is interested in Judaism in the rabbinic era. Again, I'm going to say, the rabbinic definition of stranger, which is still predominant in the Orthodox world today, I don't think is sufficient anymore because, we all, because our self-identity has changed. I think I talked about this last week. Um, so I think what I was trying to do by bringing these teachings of the rabbinic period was to show how the thrust of the Torah teachings, which is, it's very clear, how are you supposed to treat the stranger? It says, love the stranger as yourself. Treat them as what you would treat one of your own. Um, uh, uh, Do not oppress them if you know the feelings of the stranger. All of that, what I was trying to show is it gets carried through into rabbinic literature. Hillel becomes the paragon, even though the definition of the stranger has changed, of how you treat this person. Do you follow what I'm saying, everybody? Mm-hmm. But I'm finding, listening to your questions, that this is, it's, that, that may not have been clear about what I was trying to get at. Because um, I think our minds are so heavy with uh, the, mo- the, situ- the situation of our moment. So my point only with this is that d- regardless of how Judaism and each era defined the stranger, how we're supposed to treat the stranger carries through. Um, that was really my point. And these other teachings um, on this page, which we don't have to spend time um, on, explain that, uh, uh, just amplify that view. Uh, one of the things, just to in the, in the right-hand column here, one of the ways that conversion has changed over the many centuries is that in the, in the Orthodox world, and to a large degree in the liberal world too, to become a Jew requires a lot of training and practice before you're formally initiated into the Jewish people. Um, but in the rabbinic times, it says, our masters taught, I'm on 127, if at, a, at the present time a man comes seeking to be a, a ger, he should be asked at the present time, meaning our time of persecution, because that's when these texts were, were written. What makes you want to be received as a ger? Are you not aware that at this time Israel is broken down, pushed about, swept from place to place, driven here and there, and overcome by afflictions? If he says, I am fully aware, but I am scarcely worthy of the privilege of becoming a Jew, he is to be received at once 
and instructed in a few minor and a few major precepts. And then they list what they are, and they're the basic Gumilut Chasadim and observing Sabbath, just basic stuff about how you're supposed to treat each other. Uh, And uh, look at the last line of that paragraph of 127. One should take care not to impose on him too many commandments, nor go into fine details about them. I just wanted to point that out for those of us who know, are familiar with how arduous a path it is to become a Jew, especially in the Orthodox world at this point. Again, a a sign of how things have changed. Um, And then the next one is all about how we need to treat the person who's converted to Judaism exactly the way we would treat someone who was born Jewish, which is a major thrust of Jewish law. And so the ger, which follows directly from the laws of the Torah, where it is repeated over and over and over again, there shall be one law for citizen and stranger alike, and you shall uh, not oppress the stranger, and you shall treat the stranger just as you would like to be treated. Um, so that's, what, that's why I brought these teachings, to show that even though the definition of stranger changed dramatically in the rabbinic period, the thrust of how you're supposed to treat this person. However, that doesn't address, say, the, the, Diane's question about uh, who you trust and all that. Or, and, I, and, and to be honest, I don't quite understand what you're getting at by talking about the Hindu. Um, I don't quite understand. Would you say a little more? I think I've gotten confused in listening to you about the Garen Torah, because I thought you were saying more than that, that they had to become more like us than not. And that's not, I thought, the meaning in Torah, just anyone who happens to be living in the community and is staying there. That's a ger. So oh, a right. So could be a ger. They're still an idol worshiper, you know, they're, you know, all of that. But you still have to treat them, the same laws apply to everybody. That, I thought, was what you meant. Not exactly. Today. Well, that leaves me then with how can they be quoting Exodus in Israel for the Sudanese who are not planning to convert in any way? How? Because the, uh, the understanding of who is a ger changes over time. So now Israel is a sovereign nation. The citizens of Israel have have refugees coming into their sovereign space. So therefore, the definition of who is a stranger changes again in our modern period. So what you're saying, I I hadn't followed this. Uh, uh. So what you're saying is the treatment remains the same, the Torah teachings remain the same. We're allowed to keep changing the definition of ger. We have to. That's what we're doing right now. I'm saying we have to because our... I'm not following that. Okay, Okay. Judaism is an evolving civilization. It has principles, but the principles and the definitions of terms have to be reconsidered as human society continues to transform into new organizational forms. Now we live in the age of nation states. I don't know how much longer. I don't know what's next. But while we live in the age of nation states, a ger means a resident alien or a refugee. That's what it means. And the laws of how to treat the stranger who comes into our midst still apply. 
without the same criteria for what that stranger has to do. Right, the definition of stranger has changed. Okay. I'm sorry, I was not... Does that make sense, though? Yeah, does no, everyone I, follow me? Yeah, the expectation changed. No, not the definition changed. The expectation of how we're supposed to treat them never changed. But we don't ask them for this. The, uh, the expectation of how we're supposed to treat them now, yeah. which means welcome them, yeah, give us, them the same status right. as a human being as right. we have, that, has, that never changes. Right. That's the expectations of how we are supposed to treat, treat them. them. But what we ask from them isn't the same. Uh, that is correct. Yeah. We ask from them to follow the laws of our land. Right. But when we were a dispersed religious community, those are the laws of our religious practice. Now that we're back as a nation state, it changes again. Yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> how, so how do the, uh, uh, the Torah teachings and the rabbinic teachings influence sort of secular Jewish law, like Israeli law? Right. So is, that's an interesting question. Israeli law is mostly um, based on constitutional, democratic, modern nation states. Um, and so the Israeli Declaration of Independence, which is a really inspiring document, there is no Israeli constitution. There's, that's not how that system developed. But there's an Israeli Declaration of Independence, which makes it clear that everyone, regardless of religion, race, gender, you know, is, oh, it will be treated, you know, as, as, as uh, with equal rights under this new nation of Israel. But the Israeli Declaration of Independence does quote the prophets from the Torah. So it's this interesting hybrid um, of um, modern democratic national principles merged with the uh, most high-minded um, passages from, from uh, the prophets especially. Uh, we should study the Israeli Declaration of Independence in honor of their 70th anniversary. It's really worth looking at. It's really worth... Uh, and there are other elements in Israeli law, which mostly derives from, again, the previous legal systems that it took over from, British, Ottoman. It's really a mishmash. Um, but there are certain elements that are directly from Jewish law, which the most famous one is that there's no capital punishment in Israel. Now, you want a case study of an evolving religious tradition, okay? How many times does it say in the Torah, and if you do this, you shall be stoned to death? A lot. The, a lot. Scary. A lot. The rabbis eliminate capital punishment. And they do it by, they can't, they can't in the rabbinic method, they can't contradict the Torah openly, saying that was then, that's wrong. Instead, they say things like, if you are going to uh, um, execute uh, uh, someone, you have to have corroborating witnesses like up the wazoo, and they have to have the exact same testimony, and the court has to have a supermajority, and, and, and to the point where they legislated out of possibility. That's the rabbinic solution. And they say famously in the Talmud, a, a court that has even one execution on its hand in 70 years has blood on its hands. Mm. So the rabbis completely turn around the Torah. And again, this is a great case study in how Judaism transforms, just like this study of what the stranger is. 
So Israel, so this is something that most Jews don't know, and it's something certainly most Christians don't know because their whole Christian identity for many Christians is based on that they have superseded that violent God of the Old Testament. So it just it, it destroys their whole argument to know that the Jews did it too. You know what I'm saying? Uh, but uh, also among us, because we've absorbed that. So in Israeli law, capital punishment is forbidden, except for the three instances that the rabbis still allow it, one of which is endangering the life of the Jewish people, which is why Eichmann was uh, executed. Um, that's the only exception. So there's a debate in Israel. Um, uh, you know, should Yigal Amir, the guy who shot and assassinated Yitzhak Rabin, and he's in jail, but he's, he, some people want to execute him, but it's not going to happen. And then, of course, there are the reactionary forces in Israeli government right now in society who say, want to make treason, you know, who want to expand the definition of treason, right? They also don't execute terrorists. Um, and uh, so that is the most famous sort of example of how Jewish law impacted Israeli law is in the fact that there's no capital punishment. There are Jews in Israel who want to change that, but it's... It's, I don't think it's in danger right now. Um, help. On Yom Kippur, you always tell that wonderful story about the, uh, the, the man who's starving to death and uh, ah, yes. say, he who saves one person, if you save one person's life, it's like you save the world. That's right. And it, to me, somehow that can... Is that extended? Is that only for a Jew? I mean, isn't that uh, the, the, the epitome of the stranger also? It would be our... That doesn't say he who saves one Jew saves the world. That's right. He who saves one man saves the world. And that, to me, is going, speaking to the highest value of, of, uh, Ju of Judaism. That's right. And that makes it easier, to me, to look at the questions of... Mass migration. How many I'll people are coming? Mm -hmm. There's too many people coming. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter. You have to look at one person. If there's a, a million coming or one coming, mm -hmm. it's the same. Each person has to be looked at as you have to deal with that person. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. So it says in the Talmud, it says in the Mishnah, um, and actually it comes in the section where if you are adjudicating a capital crime, uh, before uh, you exhort the witnesses and say, remember, one who saves a single life saves an entire world, and one who destroys an, a single life destroys an entire world. And so in that Hasidic story we read in Yom Kippur, Levi Yitzchak is, it's a riff on that famous Jewish saying. Levi Yitzchak of Berdichev is up in the heavenly court uh, praying for, uh, pleading with God and arguing with God to save humanity. But then he hears this, this like, moan down in his shul, he looks down, you remember this story, he looks down, and Chaim, the, the, the washerman, the, you know, uh, has fainted from hunger, because he's been up in heaven so long, and Yom Kippur's already, it's dark already, and he turns to leave, and the, and, uh, um, the angels say, Levi Yitzchak, don't leave, you were tipping the scales, you were about to save the entire world. And he says, who says that the, that the cost of saving the entire world is the life of Chaim the washerman? 
and he leaves. And they, they call after him, Levi Yitzchak, you are saving the world. It's the most beautiful story, isn't it? Um, so, I think we... I, I, I agree with you. And it, but once again, put on your uh, historical evolutionary thinking cap. What was true in the, in the ancient times, what was true in the Middle Ages about who was part of your group changes in the modern era. Because our big, the idea of a, of a one humanity, of a universal human family, is a quintessentially modern idea. And we have embraced it because it's the truth. Uh, it's like it, we have expanded our definition of who is in our circle of concern. And so Judaism has to evolve too and take the principle, again, the principle of how we're supposed to treat the other and now expand it as far as we can. And Judaism has the principle embedded in all the teachings in the Torah and it's our job to universalize those principles <clears throat> in an era of, of where we understand that humanity is, is one family. That's not a contradiction. That's an evolution of the principle. Just like all men are created equal, we evolve that principle as our understanding of who is considered man expands. Right? right? It's the same thing. And so um, uh, it's only those who think Judaism is a fixed or rigid, unchanging tradition that would say, oh, but Judaism doesn't say that. It does now, right? Because we Jews are saying it. That's so important. Molly, what did you want to say? Um, I was just going to say something off of what you said. Um, when I was in my first semester of college, my English class studied the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the Quran. So a lot of the Quran, it's contradictory, but they did say if you were to kill a fellow man, it's like you're killing all of civilization. Right. They also would teach... Um, specifically about Judaism, um, love and peace, as long as you are a Jew who's following your religion as you were meant to. So I know that you said that we didn't know too much about um, Muslim culture and Islam, but parts of it was just beautiful. I, I know. We had a class here last year where we started learning about that. I'm glad you got to study that too. It Thank you. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Thank you. Gail? For many of us, the, defi the definition of Gera is also changing in terms of Echo Judaism mm -hmm. and Echo Kashu to include all the creatures, the whole planet. Ah, this is very important. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, can you handle it? <laughs> there are other, um, we don't, that's a beautiful way of saying it. And if that's like too, becomes too diffuse, there are other Jewish principles that we can employ yeah. that take in the creatures and the earth. Yes. Uh, so we don't necessarily, so if it serves you mm -hmm. to think of the, the other that way, that's beautiful, but if it makes you go, oi, I can give you a different set. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's hard enough to love my family, you know, because <laughs> I understand all this. This is very high-minded, right? But we want to hold it there and aspire. So I'm with you, yeah. That's cool. And we see that also in, in, in the United States with the laws changing now to protect animals more and right. recognizing the rights. Oh, yeah. Of, right. I mean, think about it. It's really important. And I'm, I, I need to catch up on this. And I'm working at it because I like there's a new documentary about Jane Goodall on uh, yeah. 
on uh, uh, National, Geographic. National Geographic. I can remember and, and this, uh, I was listening about it on the radio, and yeah. uh, um, Jane Goodall changed the way we understand our humanness because until she, she showed that apes use tools, that the apes she lives with and observes use tools, humans were defined as the species that has learned to use tools. And so now what? Because now, now the observations are, once again, it's so weird how this works. Until you think something's possible, it doesn't exist. Now it's like birds use tools. Um, uh, it's amazing. Not to mention creative, the, the, doing creative things for the sake of making things beautiful. It's like bowers, bower birds. And, and so our definition of what distinguishes us from the other species has to change now. Not to mention language and cognition. It's also, Jane Goodall was like the pioneer of all that. It was really amazing to listen to this and to realize that just as the astronauts gave us the view of planet Earth for the first time, none of us had ever seen the whole Earth before, we're also, none of us had ever thought of, none of us moderns, I'm sh I mean, when you think about native traditions, all the animals are their brothers and sisters. I mean, let's face it, that's all. But as we elevated the human intellect and then isolated it, now we're starting to break those walls down. It's cool. We, there's, so much, there's so much that's exciting about that. I mean, I just grew up assuming humans were the... Apotheosis. The apotheosis, that's right. Yes. The, the ultimate the end aim, point. the end point of evolution. And now I get to learn a systems theory that puts us enmeshed with everything, and I like so it. It's not one tree, it's a lot of bushes. <laughs> and that's the, that's I the like new, it. That's the newer vision. Of really? Yeah. Beautiful, beautiful. Mm -hmm. Alex? Um, back when uh, the conversation was around... Um, holidays, school holidays, what days do we get off, and well, what about the Jews, where this percentage nationwide, this percentage locally, and um, you know, I, I, my parents uh, came from a generation where everyone they knew was Jewish. Uh, my dad was raised by, by Orthodox Jews, so a very narrow view of the world, very narrow view of uh, Judaism, uh, very strict, a sense of Judaism and uh, not very welcoming of people that were different. And uh, my life experience has been completely opposite. And um, the idea of the stranger, like we're, we're talking about it in this worldview, macro view, but in just my own experience personally and observing other people around me and hearing other people's stories um, that as uh, society has evolved and we are not as able to live in these isolated communities in Philadelphia or New York City or wherever, um, the idea of that uh, there are parts of us, like of our personalities, our identities that in some ways are alienating of others and that it, within there is this, can be a sense of being a stranger and then being out in the community and, and feeling like, okay, I'm in with my people, whether it's Jews or some other group that you identify with and feeling like a stranger in some way because there's a piece of you that doesn't fully integrate to that 
particular community. Um, and so for me, that's been, um, I think, has been a foundation for me in terms of being open and welcoming to people who are not like me uh, on the surface. Um, because eventually a conversation happens and there's a, you know, hey, my father did that too, or I grew up with this experience in this way and it's similar. So in, in having those conversations with someone that on the surface I would have nothing in common with, commonalities come out and suddenly the, the idea that we're strangers is not the focus. It's not that I'm embracing someone who's different from me, it's um, understanding how someone else's life experience is parallel or similar to mine, or someone else's in, in some way. Um, and so the, the boiling it down to, well, my holidays, I don't get those off, or my kids don't have them off in this school system, to me kind of becomes uh, less of a priority. Um, because it, it feels more of like a competition in that way when it when it's when when the conversation is framed uh, in, in that way, um, and just like that that theme has kind of popped up throughout this conversation here and there, as far as the stranger within and you know and 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 how it's kind of shaped me and relating to other people and helping other people and whatnot. So. Thank you. I want to say a few things about that because that was a lot. That, yeah. There are several levels to unpack yeah. there. Thank you. One is that as, an, as a persecuted minority, we understand that the Jews closed ranks, right? For self-preservation. How could we possibly trust the outside world, right? And, and we grew up in those kinds of, each of us grew up to some degree, the recipient of that uh, inherited, you know, uh, sensibility, sensibility self-protection. That contradicts the idea of welcoming the stranger, right? right. But heck, Jew Jews had to build synagogues with windows up high in Europe so that people couldn't shoot them or throw rocks inside. I mean, come on. I have sympathy for that. However, in America... Uh, oh, in the course of our lifetime, we've experienced this transformation of openness uh, where uh, the challenge is no longer how to preserve, how to uh, open ourselves to the society, but how to preserve our own uh, community. Um, but meanwhile, so that's one thing, is that those, you know, there's been a big, big change in that regard. Um, so that in a liberal, progressive synagogue community like ours, we've made the determination that at this point, we are just gonna open the doors. Anyone who wants to come in, any stranger who wants to come in, we're gonna practice welcoming them, right? I like that, that's why I'm so into it. Uh, that doesn't mean I know what the consequences of that are gonna be, but uh, it feels like building walls just doesn't interest me anymore. Um, and I don't even know if it would be successful. Um, so mm, survival, self-preservation is high on my list, but not nearly as high as open hearts, right? So that's, that's the transformation of, uh, you know, that we're part of this Jewish community. Then there's the question you raise, Alex, 
Uh, Rabbi Sheila Weinberg is a dear friend of mine and a great writer and thinker, and she's written a book, Welcoming the Stranger, where she reflects on the stranger within her. The, this is a whole other level that I haven't even touched, a uh, metaphorical level, where how do we, if we're going to welcome those strangers, how do we welcome the parts of us that are alienated, that we've shut off, that we've cordoned off and said, not you. This part of me is okay, but not you. And she's written a whole beautiful little book about this. Um, her reflections on welcoming her own inner stranger. And I hadn't even gone in that direction, but you mentioned it, and it's, it's, it, it, it's, it's uh, um, evocative, isn't it, immediately. Um, and then the other level I heard you speaking about... Um, Wait, my mind just my mind just flew away. Um, oh yes, I remember. I'm going to use that as a segue. Um, the, how the other person, once you've gotten over the fact that they're not part of your group, that if you find a way to see that they're they're a human being and that we have so much in common, is such a beautiful, beautiful goal. Uh, so I'll share this now. On Sunday. A bunch of us, and we couldn't announce this to the whole congregation because we only had 30 spots, but we still have a few spots. It went on the website. Don't worry. I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was supposed to be. Um, it wasn't a secret. It's just like the Holy Cross Santa Cruz Church in Kingston is a bilingual church in Kingston, Episcopal Church, that has an Anglo community and a Spanish-speaking community. The Spanish speakers are almost all undocumented immigrants. And they have Father Frank is the English-speaking uh, priest, and Madre Filomena is the, uh, uh, is the Episcopal Spanish-speaking priest. And it's out of that church that the Ulster Immigrant Defense Network uh, has emerged. And we have a task force that's working with them. So we thought, how are we going to do this? Let's go meet them. I mean, what else, how, you know, it's like we can like talk about lobbying, and, but let's, let's do it. So they've invited us to their service at 4.30 on Sunday, uh, their Spanish-speaking service, and I'm going to be the guest speaker. I'm the preacher. I'm preaching there. And then at 6, we're having a potluck dinner uh, with them, um, and my talk is going to be interpreted by a, by a, a Spanish-language uh, translator. And uh, then we're having a potluck dinner where we're bringing kugel and uh, gefilte fish. And we figured, let's bring the food. And we're bringing hummus and some, you know, let's bring some Jewish food. And we're going to sing some songs. And they'll, I don't know what it's going to be like. But when do I get to meet these people in their own turf, you know? So we're very excited about it. So as it happens, we have about four openings left. Because they only have like room for 30 in their social hall with da, 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 da. So there's about 25 or 26 of us. So anyway, if you want to come, it's on Sunday, 4.30 till about 8 probably. Just come speak to me and uh, uh, after the class, okay? Because we still have a few openings. <coughs> we gave the task force people dibs. But when that didn't fill, I said, okay, I'll ask some other people. Um, so I mentioned that. So... And that is jumped in my mind because that is like in action what we're trying to do. And I'm going to talk about how everyone in our group, in the Jewish group who comes there, is either 
an immigrant, because I know some people in the group are, or the child of an immigrant or the grandchild of an immigrant, right? And I want to then just talk about that and say, we came to this country, we didn't know the language, we didn't, you know, it's going to, I have no idea what this is going to be like, but it's pretty cool. Um, so uh, hopefully we'll cross that sort of threshold of actually being, sharing a meal and talking with folks that we normally wouldn't connect with. It takes, by the way, it takes a lot of effort to make this happen. It's like, because we all live in our own lanes, you know? I mean, we see people at the store or at the, but to get over to their church, it's like, whew, this is, this is complicated, but we're doing it. I just, but it also makes me appreciate how much effort it takes, you know, to, because our lot, we're, we're busy just managing our own lives. Uh, this is the Spanish, their Spanish language service. service. Yes, yeah. we're invited to join them for their Spanish language service. I'll be speaking in English, in English, and tra getting translated, and then we're sharing dinner together. Are so. you Spanish? You have, a little, you have a little bit of Spanish. No, I have a little bit of French. Oh. <laughs> but uh, no, well, Spanish isn't so hard to understand, actually. Yeah, but speaking is always difficult. Yeah, but when I like, I remember when I was in in in, in Costa Rica. I could understand the signs. That was helpful. Yeah. As opposed to like when I was in Greece. And it, was, it, was, it was Greek to me. It really was. Anyhow. Okay. Um, you know what I'd like to do? There's, unless there's someone else who wants to say something right, something right now. Well, yes, Martha. I'm, I'm just thinking how sad it is that the Orthodox Jewish community does not still feels like a beleaguered minority and does not share these attitudes about the stranger, even Jews who are not orthodox or strangers to them. What is the best way and to keep a group together? To have enemies. Right. <laughs> to feel beleaguered. The best way to keep a group together is yeah. to raise everybody on the idea that we are beleaguered and in danger yeah. of extinction. So my daughter lives on. on I mean, the the, the 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 evangelical Christians—that's part of their god. That's what they teach. It's like we're in danger against the secular society, and they, you know, it's whatever. It's but I'm not just talking about religious people. Everybody does it. I mean. Well, I, what I'm thinking about is that my daughter lives on the border of Borough Park, and there have been some terrible tragedies with fires, um, uh, children dying, and she found herself part of a like a street funeral morning procession, and was challenged. Why? 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 These are our children. Why do you care? With a kind of implication. Who you mean the Orthodox said? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like. And Why do you care? Because we don't care about you. <laughs> the implication is we don't care about you, and the implication is we don't we can't imagine why anyone would care about us, so we have to take care of ourselves. So it's yeah. it's this self fulfilling group cohesiveness, you know, that's based on based on exclusion and fear. Yeah, and she was very offended. She said, "Well, I have a child. These are children. I'm helping you more than these." Did children. she make any contact? They mostly won't even acknowledge. Well, that I mean, in that life. conversation. I'm not sure. Because my experience talking to, it, my experience in, in various contacts I've had with in the ultra-Orthodox community is that most of them won't make eye contact with me yes. because they are busy keeping everybody out, right? And, uh, and then there are some who just have big hearts who smile back at me. Yeah. 
you, you know, and I, but it's hard to penetrate. It's hard to penetrate. And it's not how I want to run my life. Um, it's great for group cohesion. So I sacrifice that in the name of not wanting to live in suspicion and fear. Cloistered. Well, in suspicion and fear. You know, you could cloister yourself for other reasons that have to do with other goals you might have for a spiritual this or that or for... But I'm talking about specifically um, uh, making decisions that are based on inherited fear and uh, um, uh, isolate, uh, mistrust. Uh, there's plenty to mistrust in the world, there's a lot going wrong, all that, but that's not what I think the spiritual path is about. Yeah. And so, and so how do the Orthodox reconcile sort of their attitude with everything we've been reading? They don't leave the rabbinic paradigm. The rabbinic paradigm, which I said has been, in my opinion, superseded by the modern idea of a collective humanity that we all share and, yeah. and a, um, also uh, that we accept and buy into the value of being citizens of our country as opposed to see that as just a sort of another way to kind of maneuver through the Goyesha world, they stick with the rabbinic model and the stranger for them is the Ger, is someone who seeks entry into their community. And so that keeps, so they haven't bought the modern, they haven't bought in to this modern, con, this modern idea of pluralism that I'm describing. Does that make sense everybody? Yeah. And that's how they do it. That's how they do it. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it, wor it works to the extent that it works for them. Um, uh, uh, so yeah. I, I, are they welcoming to others who want to become a member of their community? Uh, if non-Jews non who want to convert, mm -hmm. if they convert yeah. according to the expectations of that community, which is that you agree to take on, as opposed to what the Talmud says here at a different time, 15, 1800 years ago, when welcome them, they'll learn as they go. Um, here it's, you have to be committed to every aspect of Orthodox Jewish practice. And you have to study. And when you finish studying, you come before a Beitina, a rabbinic tribunal. They test you. If they say your knowledge is not up to the level you need to become a Jew, they send you away and say, come back in six months, study this, this, and this, and then uh, come back. And when they say you're ready, you're in, yeah. right? Uh, but it's a very arduous process. In other words, it's hard to become a member. You have to really, totally, utterly be committed to want to do that. It's challenging. Uh, I have a cousin who lives in Tennessee, and he, she married... Um, Puerto Rican guy, and he wanted to convert to Judaism, and through their conservative shul in Knoxville, he went through several years of education mm -hmm. and converted, but to his, the orthodox side of the family, that was not a conversion. So he had to go, they flew him up to New Jersey, you know, and he went and sat in front of some rabbi, who mm -hmm. somebody must have paid a lot of money to, and he blessed him or whatever he did, and he went back down to Knoxville the next day, and then he was, he was good You mean enough. he didn't have to do additional he training? Have, he didn't do a damn thing. Oh, he didn't have to do anything. okay, so it's a cash cow. Yeah. <laughs> All right, and, and, all right. You know, the conservative shul in Knoxville made him work his butt off, 
but the guys up in New Jersey who were more orthodox, it must have just been a payoff or something. Yeah, so you can't say this about everybody across the board, but there are certainly plenty of elements, especially in the, uh, in the world of kosher certification, that are just, just in it for the cash, the profit, you know, you make a lot of money that way. So, yeah, so he found the right rabbi to do that. Well, he was so offended, he could care less. He just uh-huh. had to do it for, mm-hmm. the, for the orthodox elderly members of the family, but the real... The know, real thing happened real in thing his shul. Happened, yeah. uh-huh. He's still practicing and mm-hmm. he's into it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah. I don't, I don't <laughs> think that's the accepted way of doing things. It may have happened under his case, yeah. but it doesn't happen that way. No, 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 no. I said in, I know what happens in, in some, there are, there are bad actors everywhere. That's all we yeah. mean. That's all we mean. There are bad actors everywhere. I just thought it was ironic, or, or the paradox was interesting, you know. That's all. Mm-hmm. Yes, I wasn't meaning to, to defame Orthodox rabbis. No, don't worry, don't worry. <laughs> Helen? I think what you said about meeting very religious Orthodox people, and some won't even make eye contact with you, and they and you describe them as having fear and suspicion, and yet others smile at you, and they didn't they didn't have fear and suspicion. So how does that happen? I think that's the wonderful part of it. They're in the same community you're talking about. I'm saying that most in my limited sample, most will not make eye contact with me and occasionally somebody will smile back. What does that mean? I think it means about individual personalities, yes, that's all. That's, that's, that's what I'm saying. Even uh, in, in, in the yeah, sure. most religious community, there are those who of don't have the fear and suspicion and feel I have to shun you because I'm afraid of what will happen if I If I, yep, yeah, right, right. You know, something will happen to me, or right. to my group. Uh, that but doesn't. They're not worried. They yeah, have but, a lot of self-confidence in their own. Right, and that doesn't change the larger picture of a community determined to keep the rest of the world out, and so those folks function within that community, but they're still constricted by its uh, yeah. boundaries. Um, let's see. Are we still on topic? <laughs> um, not, not too bad. Not too bad. Not too bad. I've seen worse. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Nancy? I, I went on this uh, uh, for a lot of years on this Jewish retreat where it was a combination of people that, that believed in, all Jews that believed in Jesus to like Hasidics. Like, and uh. I went with the Hasids to Stewart's. We went to the Homoac Hotel. And I went with them and I, I, I was with them. Like I was part of them. And I could not believe how I felt by watching how people were watching us. And I'll never forget it. And any place we went, like we'd go out on Saturday nights, any place we went, I was part of it. And I, it was just unbelievable to me mm-hmm. to, to see people, how they stare at you, or how like when they don't think you're looking. I mean, it's just sure. remarkable. Anybody who looks different or, or odd to, gets that kind of treatment. That's right. But Unless was actual negative treatment beyond staring? Oh, I, uh, they were trying to rush. I mean, things, they, they were like not... Not verbally, but it was so obvious. Because mm-hmm. I was uncomfortable. I was so I was so uncomfortable. Yeah, but I think like other people staring at you were also feeling uncomfortable. 
Probably, yeah. Yes, because, yeah. I remember, uh, I mean, you know, a big conversation in the country right now is about white privilege and uh, how I, as a white man, you know, who's, who has not had to deal with anti-Semitism because of when I was raised, uh, the doors had all been opened for me, um, uh, can describe my um, situation as like, how oh, was such a great description. Um, Something was like, it was something about getting a great hand dealt in a game of cards. Yeah. You know, it's like, hey, it's all fair. We just dealt the cards and look at my hand. You know, and you don't realize that other people don't necessarily have the hand you have. When I, I've said this, told this story before, but the biggest aha I had that changed me forever was when my friend Reggie Harris, who's African-American, and I were driving over to the Poconos to a Jewish camp to do a sh performance together. And... Um, there was a security guard at the front of the camp. And uh, I say, hi, you know, and uh, we go through the, uh, he lifts up the gate, we go through, and Reggie says, did you see how that guy looked at me? And I said, no. Uh, and he, and I, that was like this, I don't know, I had to have a, I had to be, be with a black friend in the same car just to see what that was, just, and then I even missed it, if you know what I mean. So that happens to everybody. But what I want to say is, is that um, in the Jewish world, there's a whole community, a whole network, a whole community of Jews who have taken up 12-step programs and who have their own gatherings. It's called JACs, Jew, Jewish Alcoholics, Chemically Dependent, and Significant Others. And in that world, for recovering addicts, when people have been humbled by addiction, uh, uh, they, a lot of those boundaries disappear. Um, and people who go to Jack's are the whole spectrum of anyone who identifies as a Jew. And the rabbis who go there as support are ready to welcome everybody. It's amazing how once, how you can be in a way humbled by you know, addiction in a way that allows you to open yourself to being the same as everybody else. It's really, it's really something. Yeah. Just to piggyback on your story, um, Michelle Lewis used to talk about in our group, talk about how she would be in a, she's a, um, an African-American minister, and she would talk about how she would go into a store and be followed you probably remember I that. remember this, yeah. And at one point I said, wow, I'd really love to go with you and see that. She said, if you were with me, it wouldn't happen. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. Yes, Michelle is a, she's a, she's a um, what's her denomination? I think it's Methodist. Methodist, Methodist minister Methodist. who was previously a law enforcement yes. officer. <laughs> she has such cred, <laughs> but it doesn't matter. She was describing what it's like for her to walk around as a black woman. It's just amazing. And, oh. and Reverend Modelli said that he goes to the same stores because when he goes into a strange store, he gets followed. And he's 72 years old. He, goes into he makes sure he goes where he's known. Yeah. Mm -hmm. right. mm -hmm. it, was, it was horrifying. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so Nancy experienced that with a group of Orthodox Jews who are visibly different. Right. Right. Oh, and they. they the other part of that story, too, is um, while well, I was at the Jack's retreat. Yeah, I just didn't want to. <laughs> I know. And um, there were these um, very 
very famous religious Hasidic people that were there, these rabbis. I was chairing that one. And the rabbi was supposed to talk about God as we understood him. He was, that was the last thing he was going to do. And he said... Because remember, one on the 12 steps. <laughs> yeah. To, uh, to power, yeah, power. God is remembered. He was really good to be talking. I mean, he was a Hasidic that was good to talk. My point is, it's Hashem. that in twelve steps, it's right. God, each person. Each person needs to develop a relationship with God as you understand that higher power. In other words, it's not here's what God is. It's that as as a, as someone working these twelve steps, you have to acknowledge that your ego is not the king of the world. That there's a greater a greater reality that we serve, and they say, as you understand it, yeah. But he was, these are one of the big rabbis, like, that were there, they, you know, they were there just to do this. He came in from all the way another part of another state, and he got up and he said, I was just going to talk to you about Hashem, he was going to just do this whole thing, he said, but after being here, I just want to say my name is Abraham, and I am the child of an addict, and my, rab my, my father was a drug addict, and I never realized it, and it was... It was, it was unbelievable to see this, you know, Hasidic, very, I mean, like, I don't want to give his name, but, I mean, I'm sure you've read some of his books. I mean, that's how powerful he was. And he just came out and just did that. And then the one other thing, I'm coming out all over the place, because I also shared, because I was sharing that one, that I was a lesbian. And I had the rabbis, it was so interesting, when I walk by, I hear them whispering about me. <laughs> and I, I'll never forget that. I had such a, it was like, we, you know, it, it's hard, it, I guess, you know, it was just really, it was very hard to, even being in this place where everybody, everybody accepts everything, but it was still not, they, I, I felt it. I knew I, I, I felt like Reggie felt, I mean, I knew I was not accepted by that, that one group, you know? So it was, it was just a very, uh, it was, it was, it's one of the best experiences, though, mm -hmm. going there. The, the, the amazing thing about, I've never been part of a 12-step group, but I've read a lot about it and, and read it and sort of thought about them a lot. And, you know, they're, it's an amazing, amazing program. And uh, um, this practice of recognizing that we're all in this, we're, we're, we're of being humbled enough to recognize that we're not God uh, is just an incredible, it's an incredible thing to work on in your life. Yeah. I just want to know, the ultra, ultra Orthodox, is that like cult-like? They don't let anybody in and they, you know, they don't let their children out, you know? Okay, so I mean? there are many, there are, there are certain sects in increasing gradations of insularity, who truly are cults, meaning that if you get out, if you want to leave, you're shunned. You can't get in, not anymore. Um, you can work your way in over a long period of time. You can get in. Uh, you can be born in. Well, you can be born in. Yeah, yeah. That's the only way. But no, no, no. Out. You can eventually. There are people now who are satmar who were born secular who just got more and more orthodox as they went through their life, but they are. Uh, can I just interrupt you? So I know people that are orthodox whose parents were not orthodox. Yeah, we're not. not so, even, 
go in any way. They took this on themselves yes. as they got older. Yes, to there, become you can become a Baal Tshuva and yeah. you can become Orthodox, but she asked about the most insulated right. groups. Oh. The most insulated groups. There are many gradations. And the most insulated groups classify as cults in my definition because the people give up their autonomy to the word of the Rebbe. In other words, if the Rebbe says vote for this candidate, they all vote for that candidate. So for me, that's a definition of cultish behavior. That's all I'm saying. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And um, just like every group, we have every gradation. I mean, you know, I'm not an expert. And I know that within those communities, there's an incredible, I've said this before, I have friends who are, ultra, who are very orthodox, and I visited them up in, in uh, Beit Shemesh Elite up in, in Israel, and like, they showed me their yellow pages, where they have a whole section of free things that you can get. You need a baby carriage? Call this number. You need, uh, you need a back brace? You need a walker? Call this number. You need clothes? Call this number. And it's all free. In other words, within the community, they are taking care of their own but they are not open to the outside world. So that's how they operate. Um, um, yeah. I have a funny story. Yeah. When we were in Israel two years ago and we were staying with a friend who's very orthodox, not black hat, but very orthodox, mm-hmm. and Alfred wanted to go to one of the synagogues, and we had a whole thing because he said, no, you can't wear that kind of hat or yarmulke. No, that's the wrong one for that synagogue. You can't go into that synagogue with that one. Mm-hmm. And it was a cult kind of identification. Right, it's your uniform. Physically, it was a uniform. Right, it was right. Alfred knew nothing. As you get to know, if you spend time in the Orthodox Jewish world, the ultra-Orthodox Jewish world, you will get to know the uniform of each sect. Yeah. And it's a fedora with the tip down, it's a derby with this, it's a fur hat, it's a this, it's a that, it's a knit kippah, it's a velvet kippah, it's side locks like this, or it's side locks like this, um, it's the women with their head covered with a scarf or with a wig, it's like, and it's true. They all have their specific uniform uh, that allows them to identify their group immediately. Yeah. Not yeah. just the, I guess any religious Jew in Israel. I mean, everybody has a, has a uniform. Everybody has a uniform. So when I'm in Israel, I've said this many times, I, I usually take my kippah off because I don't fit with the folks who wear kippahs all the time. So, be, and I do that because I don't want to confuse people. Um, and sometimes I choose to wear it when I'm making a statement or when I'm in a certain environment. But I... I'm not an expert in all the uniforms, but I make conscious choices in Israel about how I appear in order to navigate the society there. Yeah, does that make sense? My, my brother, who is in Israel and is a conservative Jew, and I make all these gorgeous kippah, he wouldn't wear it because it makes a different statement than what he normally wears. That's right, that's right, that's, that's what we're saying. Yeah, it's pretty subtle, huh? If you're an outsider, think yeah, about yeah. think about someone who never saw baseball before right. and sees everyone in their uniforms and says, "Oh, they're all wearing hats and right. flannels." <laughs> you know, it's like, and you say, "What? You? I'm a Dodgers fan." You know, it's like it's the same thing. It's like from the outside, it all looks pretty much the same, but from the inside, you know, I'm thinking about uniforms. You know, I took my daughter visiting colleges. Mm. 
And boy, I don't even know what she was seeing, but she at one college she said, I really like it here. Everybody's dressed like me. And I was like, no, I, I have no idea what she's referring to. When I took, when I took Lauren to colleges, she But she had found her tribe. So I just want to say that it operates, every, it operates everywhere. Isn't that amazing? Whether you're wearing a baseball cap like this, or it's a flat brim, or it's... You're all like me. She said. Yeah. And I took her, she went, she didn't, I Who were you taking? I was taking, I, my daughter yeah. went to visit Bard. So she came back, she loved Bard. She got when in she like, was an 18 year old. Yeah, she got in like, you know, their first visit, she just, you know, said, okay, I'm applying, that's it. And it's, but I, I, she came home, I said, well, it's awfully small, isn't it? She'd come from a very tiny high school and it was too small for her. I said, isn't it really too small? She said, yeah, but they're all like me. <laughs> that was her answer as an 18-year-old. So, Whereas there are other campuses, I remember going with my older son, we walked on and two minutes later it was clear, we don't belong here. Don't belong here, that's right. It's so subtle and these are the rarefied liberal arts colleges that my upper middle class, you know, sort of, so, and like to, to parse that this one's preppier and this one's this and this one's that and it's like, okay, but they know it right away. They, the kids feel it yeah, right away. Well, I never knew. It's I mean, fascinating. I do, I do it. I, I learned not, not if I would go visit my mom in Great Neck and go shopping and buy things there, and then I would bring them back here and say, "Oh, I don't like this." <laughs> oh, because it didn't fit Woodstock. Right. Absolutely. So you know, I actually—that's actually a good way, a good place to segue back into all this. This is becomes incredibly subtle now, of who's the stranger. In a really, a real way, it's like there are so many cues. Many of them are even are clearly subconscious or or barely are barely aware of that identify someone as part of us, not just the Jewish community, but all these other gradations. And yeah. It's fascinating to think about that we should stay aware of that in all situations and give a countenance of welcome to everybody. Which is, ironically, one of the positive things that we have from, Hillel, from Shammai's sayings. Even though most of his are, ne are these kind of like, uh, Shammai says in, in the teachings of the sages, greet everyone with a friendly countenance. Which is ironic given how he greets these people. But, <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, and you know what we're going to do next time? Something uh, within, so... I'm just really going to reflect on what we've just been saying about the subtle uniforms that we carry. It's like, that's a big, that, that's really worth thinking about. Next time I have texts that go take the stranger idea, the other, into a different direction, which is, there's a famous rabbinic series of stories about someone named Elisha Benavuya, who was a famous rabbi, who becomes an apostate. And they stop calling him by his name, and they start calling him Acher, which means the other. Except for his devoted friend and pupil, Rabbi Meir, who continues to have contact with him. And so I want to read those stories with you next time. It's, again, they're, they're, they're really um, famous rabbinic stories that when I was thinking of texts that relate, deal with the other, this one has a character called the other, who they take his name away. So we'll do that next time, okay? Um, I have a funny story yeah. about the context the context of the concept of the other changing with the context. So I have a friend whose son 
suffers from Tourette's syndrome, and she went to a conference in Washington, D.C. And somebody came in off the street to register for this hotel. And everybody is barking and saying profanities and doing their tics and whatever. And he is definitely the other. And she had to explain to him why he's feeling so strange in this context. Oh, because he was also had Tourette's. He did not no. have Tourette's. Oh, he did not have Tourette's. He just wandered in, sitting in the hotel. Oh, that's a good story. It, it, so I'll close with this comment. You know, our, our, our Saturday morning community includes Mo and Bob and Patrick sometimes, who are these developmentally disabled guys, who we've integrated. And you know, they're making their, they're making their always their sounds and their clicks and their words and their, and on one sense, sometimes I ask them to tone it down, but mostly it's, I consider it a practice of welcoming, you know, of just deal with it, Jonathan, and and because uh, that's how I think of it. I, that's how I think. I think it's such a blessing that they come and give us this opportunity. Yes, mm -hmm. I always go up and I just right. It's been a real opportunity Shake all these years. And you get this warm embrace. Right. And what a beautiful thing that they want to be here. I know. Yes, you know, it's yes. just amazing that whatever Most whatever disability they have or whatever, they're Jewish. And they know it, and they want to come. And where do they come from? They come from a group home not too far from here. They come from ARC. Um, so, and Mo just loves opening oh, Mo loves shaking Bill's hand. Patrick oh. wants, just wants to hug you, and Bob wants to shake your hand. The light on his face. Yeah. Is, is, it's such a blessing to, to be in the presence of that. See, that's the next step, is when you realize you're being blessed by their presence. And I do feel that way sometimes, too. Thank you. Yeah. All right, thank you so much for this wide-ranging and valuable discussion. Thank you, truly.